Disturbed her repose with tumult, disquiet, rebellion, and strife. Provoked beyond bearing, at last she arose and robbed him at once of his hopes and his life. The Anglian lion, the terror of France, of prowling in sanguine, the tweet silver flood, but taught by the bright Caledonian lands, he learned to feed in his own native wood. The fell happy raven to wing from the north, the scourge of the sea and the dread of the shore, the wild Scandinavian bore a shoot forth to wanton in carnage and wallowing gore. O'er countries and kingdoms the fury prevailed, no arts could appease him, no arms could repel, but brave Caledonia in vain they Sailed, as lives welcome witness and lunk of detail. 
Thus bold and dependent, unconquered and free, our bright course of glory forever shall run. For brave Caledonia, mortal must be, I'll prove it from you, clear as clear as the sun. Rectangle, triangle, the figure we'll choose, the brightest chance and all time is the base. But brave Caledonia's the hypotenuse. Then ergo she'll match them and match them always Hello, this is William Shank. And this is the Christogenia European Fellowship Forum. Thank you for coming. Praise Yahweh. It is Thursday, February 2nd, 2012. I was in a much harsher mood than that that introductory um, song, Brave Caledonia, my you wanted to believe. But that's okay. I think I thought I'd play something to mellow myself out. I want to present this paper that I had written. It's a short paper. It, it's for the um, January 2012 Saxon Messenger. It's just an editorial. I'm going to keep on picking on, taking pot shots at, taking swipes at British Israel and its followers for as long as I can because I believe that they are absolute capitulators and vacillators concerning the scripture and the word of God that they've fled from the truth and I'm talking about historically over the last 150 years they fled from the truth and sought refuge in the hands of the enemies of God who just happened to control the British economy That doesn't mean we seek their shelter. That, that's, that, that's a horrible thing. That's a horrible crime. That's a sin. God is not mocked. Of men and nations, one reaps what one sows. Among others, John Wilson and Sharon Turner were rather brilliant men of the 19th century to whom all British and American Israel Christian identists are indebted. Of course, Sharon Turner was not himself a Christian identist, although I do believe he may have had that persuasion. It didn't show in his writing. These men were among the first to examine, interpret, and present the archaeological data coming out of Mesopotamia in a manner that was meaningful to serious students of the Bible and of early European history. Through them, Anglo-Saxon Christians rediscovered the meaning and the gravity of their Saxon heritage. However, these men also knew something that British Israel acolytes reject even now. That the Germanic peoples of the continent are kin with the Anglo-Saxon people of Britain from whom they had sprung. 
Yeah, you know, Clifton Emmerheiser had once republished a message from this Marie King, who I presume is a British Israel writer. I, I never looked into her background. And she had the audacity to publish that Sharon Turner was wrong about English and German kinship. And she is a disgrace. And all of her followers and all those who agree with her are disgraces. Sharon Turner was ten times the researcher and scholar than anybody I've ever seen in British Israel. Although they never engaged to, they never engaged the effort to appropriately examine the origin of those calling themselves Jews today. And Sharon Turner, even though I admired the man in many respects, counted among his close friends the Disraeli family, who were Jews themselves. So they never looked into the identity of the Jews. Today. I'm sorry, the young British Israel identity movement in the 19th century had at least started off on a firm foundation where it comes to Anglo-Saxon identity. They knew that the Germans and the, the English were kindred peoples. Then along came a bank clerk named Edward Hines who wrote influential books convincing people that the offspring of Jacob basically consisted only of the people of Britain and the Jews, and that the German people, the real kindred to the, Assyri to the English, were actually Assyrians. Not that it would be bad to be a true Assyrian, since they too are children of Adam. But Edward Hines' labeling of the German people as Assyrians and the acceptance of that label in British Israel circles caused British Israel identity to isolate themselves from and to exalt themselves over their continental brethren. While at the same time, British Israel identity embraced the Jews, who are in truth among the progeny of Cain, the Rephaim, Canaan, and Esau. They are Canaanites and Edomites, along with being mixed with several other non-biblical races. Subsequent British Israel writers, for the most part, either followed Edward Hines's misidentification of the German people, or they remained silent on the issue. Let me say that it was um, medieval rabbis that first labeled Central Europe and the peoples of Central Europe as Ashkenaz. And it seems to me that Edward Hine and all of the later British Israel writers, they were probably getting their history right from medieval rabbis or, or their contemporary rabbis who passed down the lies of the medieval rabbis. And the medieval rabbis had every reason to lie about the identity of the peoples of Europe because they themselves were masquerading as the people of Israel.
It's that simple. If you want to consider the Germans to be Ashkenaz or Assyria or, or any other non-Israelite people, well, then you're basically following the medieval rabbis. That's where you're getting your history from. That's how you're judging your own brethren. Because it's absolutely clear from history that the English and the Germans, aside from where they came from, the English and the German, the, the true German people are fully kindred people. They have a common origin. Therefore, they must have a common destiny. The historical evidence of British and German kinship is without question. The Venerable Bede, the famous church historian, generally beloved by English scholars and, and especially by British Israel scholars who quote them all the time, but they only quote small parts of them. Bede, writing in his ecclesiastical history in the 7th century, said this, Speaking of the strangers, and he's writing from a British perspective when he says that. Speaking of the Saxons invading and colonizing early Britain. Bede says, now the strangers, meaning the Angles and the Saxons, in England, well in Britain at that time, had come from three of the more mighty tribes in Germany. That is, the Saxons, the Angles, and the Jutes. Of the Jutes came the people of Kent and the settlers in white. That is the folk that hold the Isle of White. And they which in the province of the West Saxons are called unto this day the nation of the Jutes, right over against the Isle of Wight. Of the Saxons, that is, of that region which is now called of the Old Saxons, descended the East Saxons, the South Saxons, and the West Saxons. Further of the Angles, that is, of that country which is called Angeln, and from that time to this, meaning from about 450 A.D. until Bede's time, almost 300 years later, is said to stand deserted between the provinces of the Jutes and the Saxons, descended the East Angles the Uplandish Angles, the Mercians, and all the progeny of the Northumbrians, that is, of the people that inhabited the north side of the flood of Humber, the river, and the other nations of the Angles. That's from Bede's Ecclesiastical History, Book 1, Section 15. Saxony in Germany is called by Bede, the region of the Old Saxons. Because the newly conquered areas of Bede's Britain were also being named after the Saxons. West Saxon land, East Saxon land, South Saxon land, North Saxon land. Well, that's a joke, right? Essex, Sussex, Wessex, and Nosex. Thankfully, it is not a North Saxon land. I had to get that in. Saxony in Germany was called by Bede the region of the Old Saxons. Because the newly conquered areas of Bede's Britain were also being named after the Saxons. 
to say that the Germans were no longer Saxons after this colonization would be tantamount to claiming that the English were no longer English after the 17th century founding of New England. Bede referred to the people of Germany as the old Saxons because they are the people from whom came the new Saxons, the people in England, the Saxons of England. He is not saying that all of the Saxons picked up and moved across the channel. He's saying just the opposite, that the people on his side of the channel in England are derived from those people across the channel in Germany. And just because one district of the land of the Angles in Germany was left without Angles does not mean that there were plenty, does not mean that there were not plenty of Angles left in other parts of Germany. Indeed, we have German surnames, Angler and Anglert and Angles, among others. And they're all surnames of the Angles in Germany. They're not the only Angles in Germany, but they are surnames of the Angles in Germany. And they are popular. The Angles in Germany, or on the continent, I should say, also gave their names, or their name, to places such as Engelberg in Switzerland, Engelsberg, of which there are two towns by that name in Bavaria, Engelskirchen, northeast of Cologne in Westphalia, Engelhartzel in Austria, Engeloy in Norway, Ingelheim in the Rhineland, along with many other similar place names. The name of the Angles is written all over Germany because those people, to a great extent, are derived from the Germanic tribe of the Angles, just like the English are. The people of Germany are every bit as Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Saxon as the people of Britain. And both nations have a part of their heritage, well, the greatest part of their heritage, in the pre-Saxon migrations. I'm sorry. They, they both have a small part of their heritage in the pre-Saxon migrations from other Adamic and earlier Israelite nations in the northwestern Europe which took place in the form of the Jepethite tribes and then the later Phoenicians, Chimerians, and Romans. And the Chimerians are every bit as Scythian as the Anglo-Saxons are. Note that Bede said that the English came from three of the more mighty tribes in Germany. And so many fools in British Israel would rather believe that the English were three tribes that were distinct that came from Germany. With certainty, the English are every bit as German as the Germans are. I have a second witness, Geoffrey of Monmouth. 
who in Book 6, Chapter 10 of his Histories of the Kings of Britain, attributes the following words to the famous king, the Saxon king, Hengist, where he makes a dialogue between Hengist and Vortigern, the king of the Bretons. And he says, Most noble of all the kings, the Saxon land is our birthplace, one of the countries of Germany. And the reason of us, of our coming, is to offer our services unto thee, meaning Vortigern, or to some, or unto some other prince. For we have been banished from our country, and this for none other reason than for that the custom of our country did so demand. For such is the custom in our country that whensoever they did dwelt therein, do multiply too thick upon the ground. The princes of the diverse provinces do meet together and bid the young men of the whole kingdom come before them. They do then cast lots and make choice of the likeliest and strongest to go forth and seek a livelihood in other lands. They were looking for Lebensraum. So as that their native country may be disburdened of its overgrown multitudes. Accordingly, owing to our country being thus overstocked with men, the princes came together, and casting lots did make choice of these young men, that here thou seest before thee, and bade them obey the custom that has been ordained of time immemorial. They did appoint, moreover, us two brethren, meaning Hengist and Horsa, to be their captains, for that we were both born of the family of the dukes of Germany. Wherefore, in obedience unto decrees ordained of yore, have we put to sea, and under the guidance of Mercury, that, that's definitely a, a, a Latinization, eh? Have sought out this thy kingdom. Of course, as it is often told, eventually the Saxons under Hengist and Horsa win the land at the expense of the Bretons. Well, there may be people of Slavic blood in Germany. For instance, the, the Wens of Brandenburg are actually considered to be Slavs. There were also many Slavs coming to Britain, especially with the Danes. The Danes brought many Slavs into Britain. And while, as we have seen, Mercia was a... Um, a Saxon colony at one time, a Saxon county, I should say, or kingdom. Later on, 200 years after the time of Bede, it was basically taken by the Danes. It was the, the probably the, um, the county that the, the Danes had settled the most densely, I would guess, from, from my remembrance of reading Sharon Turner's History of the Anglo-Saxons. While there may be many people descended in part from Roman stock in Germany, so it was in Britain also. 
the Romans had forts all over Britain. They had many soldiers in Britain. They had forts all up and down the Rhine in Germany. And they had many soldiers along the Rhine. In any event, all of these peoples, the Slavs even, the Slavs, the Saxons, the Romans, ultimately have a common ancient origin. But there is no doubt in the medieval writers that the British, and especially British Israel, they claim to love Bede, they claim to love Geoffrey of Mammoth, and they esteem them so much, yet there's no doubt in these writers that the Anglo-Saxons and the German Saxons are indeed immediate kindred peoples. There are no statements in these or any ancient writers to the contrary. Only British Israel, and then later the people of Britain in general, and I'm talking about the World War I and II period, deny their German heritage. And they have done so primarily because they've caved into the propaganda of the Jews. And that started with British Israel. At one time, I am told, I wasn't there. At one time, Royal Albert Hall was regularly filled with British Israel adherents. All of them were members of the most influential political circles in England. And they all became subscribed to the idea that the Germans, who were in reality their own, were really Assyrians who had to be destroyed in order to assure the prosperity of England and the safety of English destiny. As far as I'm concerned, they were all under the spell of Edward Hine and his followers, and they all played right into the hands of the Jewish bankers of the city, who were the real culprits wanting to destroy the German people and the superior German economy so that the continent would forever be the slave to themselves. While all of England and all of America, even though half of the people of America were also of German origin, while all of England was smitten with the Jewish propaganda which coped them into slaying the Huns, the people of British Israel had every opportunity to know better, and they should have known better. They should have stood against the destruction of their continental brethren. They, of all the English, were in a position to know better, and yet they knew worse. While it is common knowledge that King George, Kaiser Wilhelm, and Tsar Nicholas were all cousins, over all other Englishmen, those of British Israel should indeed have known that not only the princes, but also the races of the Germanic Rus, the Germans themselves, and the English people were all close cousins. Yet the English world, which includes America, did nothing 
while Russia was destroyed by the Bolshevik Jews. And both the English and the Americans, without a doubt, and there's documentary evidence to prove it, knew everything that was going on in Russia in the Bolshevik period. And the English people were more than happy to slay their Assyrian-German kindred, all for the commerce of the Jew, under the spell of Jewish propaganda. They should have resisted it. Those who should have known better were happier to help it along. From his earliest days, as he writes in Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler recognized the ties of blood that Germany had with England. And he also recognized the need that both nations had to stand together against the alien hordes of the Bolsheviks, with which they had hoped to flood all of Europe. Yet Hitler also knew that the real head of Bolshevism sat in the city of London, that alien state within a state which was also the real ruler of the English people. Hitler knew that international communism and international capital were two heads of the same Jewish beast. When under Hitler, Germany rose to oppose world Jewry and global communism, the English once again answered the call to destroy their German kin, all for the benefit of the Jew. During the war, Ezra Pound, William Joyce, and others also consistently attempted to warn the English people about the true nature of their masters, and they were ignored and even ridiculed. This is the power of the Jewish media, to brainwash an entire people. And the educated classes, especially in British Israel, simply went along in spite of the facts that lay before them. They should have known better. At the end of the war, Germany and Hitler were destroyed. But where were the English? And where was British Israel? The great British Empire was now gone. That great empire, which, even above all Englishmen, the adherents of British Israel took such pride in as a commission from God. And it crumbled into oblivion. The writings of John Wilson and Sharon Turner were now forgotten relics. And most of all, those of British Israel who were originally smitten by the propaganda of the banker Edward Hine were dead of old age. Today, both England, English, I'm sorry, today both England and America, along with the rest of Europe, are being overrun by aliens. Not only did England lose its empire, it's losing its homeland. England is reaping, and America, just what 
It is sown. While yesterday's Englishmen blindly did the bidding of the Jews of the city, today's Englishmen are the slaves of Jews everywhere. And the public policy is a Jewish policy. England and America still enforce those policies blindly. That same policy of Saxon destruction that the Jews used England and America to implement on the continent are now being implemented, is now being implemented here at home. And where is British Israel? At one time, they could fill Albert Hall. They're like a ruffled old whore. Today, they can't fill an Irish pub. they become a mockery. The men who should have known better a 100 years ago Today, their successors are a laughingstock, and they still refuse to take a stand for the Saxon race. They're still in bed with the Jews. Those who were left in British Israel continue to trumpet glories past, and they wear blinders as to what is going on in Saxondom today. In their glossy journals, they reprint articles some good and some bad, trumpeting British achievements throughout the centuries and relishing the great covenants of God while they ignore the ever-increasing flood of aliens and the destruction of England by all of the races which England had once conquered and which that same British Israel once boasted was their God-given commission. Is not the current destruction of England also God-given? Is not punishment in kind because England once gladly destroyed her own kindred nations? And I count America as part of that because we are suffering the same fate. God is not mocked. One reaps what one sows. The English who not long ago had exalted themselves above all of their Saxon brethren, have now lost their own nation to the devices of those same Jews whose bidding they had done. Now the English are overrun, as they once overran their brethren. And yes, the continent is also overrun. America is likewise suffering that same fate. This is not an accident that such mighty and industrious nations could be destroyed from within in such a short time. Our Saxon race is suffering the judgment of God for our own actions towards our brethren. If either Kaiser Wilhelm or Adolf Hitler had prevailed, Europe today would still be for Europeans. From 1 John chapter 4, if a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God, love his brother also. 
in a world where Christian men would know better, the Saxon refuses to go to war against Saxon. And the Antichrist Jew is expelled from London, New York, Berlin, and all Saxon lands. In such a world, the bellicose Winston Churchill would live life as a pub fly, an occupation for which he is much better suited. A man like Adolf Hitler would only meet Albert Speer at some at some obscure Bavarian architects convention. In the perfect world, he wouldn't have had to rise to the leadership of his country, and he could have pursued his first love. Free from warring against each other, only then are Saxon peoples prosperous. As for British Israel, they will only be of any real benefit to Saxons anywhere if they would get out of bed with the Jew and learn to take a stand for true Saxondom. From 2 John 9 to 11, Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. There's no Jew that could have God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come anyone to you and brings not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. And since the days of Edward Hine, British Israel has been in bed with the deniers of Christ. They may as well be British Jews. Imagine how many Saxon men would inhabit Germany today if the Englishman had loved his brother and not volunteered so quickly to destroy their continental kin. Still more than that, imagine how many Englishmen there would be in Britain. There wouldn't be room for aliens if so many had not gone off to be destroyed in the wars of the Jews. The same may be said of 19th century France or of America for the last 200 years. If white men cared for their kindred, Christian civilization would abound and there would not be room in the world for either Turk or Kafir or Jew. That's basically my challenge to British Israel to repent and to get out of bed with the Jews because they've seen through their re that their love of the Jews they've seen nothing but destruction and degradation. I'm going to open up the microphones of, of um, some of our European friends and if anybody else wants it to say anything, you'll have to request it. Hello, Dorcas. Hello to you. No Danny Hi. today. How you doing, Otilia? 
Hello, Al. It's great to see you here. Well, I guess I don't have any conversation after all that, huh? Well, you always treat a subject so thoroughly. You know, it takes a while for, for me to sort of catch up with what you've been saying, and uh, there's rarely anything anybody can add. No, I'll second that. What can one say? <laughs> well, well, you know, this attitude should be brought to the attention of some of the... Um, but the Saxons who might be left in British Israel so yes. that they can consider these things and possibly repent, repent of their love of God's enemies and, and, and understand that they are indeed God's enemies. And that England, as well as America, through their embrace of God's enemies, have suffered as they have in, in this day of age, this day and age. Well, I think that they're like Judeo-Christianity. They don't understand. I mean, um, say Matthew 5, he tells them that he's only speaking to Israelites, and but they don't grasp that. And then he says, um, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. They do, haven't discerned between... These statements, they haven't been taught it. And they feel that they're doing the Almighty's work, but they're ignorant of it. And that is exactly the same as Judeo-Christianity. They all feel righteous that they're um, being good to all these aliens. They smile at them and welcome them and give them their money. I mean, who's told them the truth? Nobody. Well, well, we're to embrace our personal enemies and, and not hate them and, and forgive them. But God's enemies, as I yes. just read in 2 John, uh -huh. in Second John, verses 9 to 11, God's enemies are a different story. And we uh -huh. must reject them. Yes. The enemies of Christ have to be rejected. Yes, but they don't understand that. If no one teaches them, uh, I mean, when you read scripture, they think it's talking about the world. I, I'm sad to see that British Israel are, st are on the same footing as um, the churches or the denominations. Well, well, yes, it is. It has sunk to that level. It would yes. be interesting to know what their membership is in terms yes. of, you know, numbers. I, I don't know what Dorcas thinks, but I can't imagine it's, it, there are many of them left. There are certainly no young people in that movement. No. Well, Dorcas has been kind enough to send me two glossy magazines. From from two of the British Israel organizations, the the Ensign Messenger and, and the BIWF. Right. 
And they're, they're, they're awfully slick. Man, I wish I had that kind of money to print the Saxon Messenger like that. I have priced. <laughs> I have priced through Lulu the printing of the Saxon Messenger in full color. Without the glossy paper, it's $22 a copy. Wow. For, for the 44 pages. Without the glossy paper. Now, now with that high-quality, full-sheen, glossy paper, that, that's almost photograph-quality paper. It is, yeah. That's expensive mm-hmm. paper. So, so you can imagine how much, even if they're printing 10,000 of them, it, it's still costing a lot of money to send that issue out every quarter. Yeah. And there's enough of them around to do that. Uh, I mean, they're well-financed, and, and it's all yeah, but, uh, all of the information in it. It is basically old hat. It's trivial. It, it's stuff that m- most um, Christian identists should take for granted nowadays. Mm. But, Bill, that, all that money came from one source. It doesn't come from the support of the members. Well, I pray it runs out soon. That's all I can well, say. I think... I think... I think it probably will do because they have no experience in handling that sort of thing. It's um, that they're glossy magazines that that they're just that they they mean nothing. That they're reprinting articles from 120 years ago. That they add one or two new articles, which are really only um, new phraseology. It, it's rephrased statements that are a hundred years old yet you know about the former glories of the british empire and the fulfillments of mm-hmm. prophecy as british israel sees it but but um that there's nothing real in it there's nothing that's going to defend or, or, or um propose a defense for the, the heritage that british israel claims in today's world mm-hmm. uh, the previous um editor he he retired a couple of years ago. Then Michael, or oh, I can't think of his name, he uh, took over the chairmanship of it. And uh, they were always writing to the Queen. I could never understand it. I went to a couple of their um, annual meetings and... Um, they were all sort of bowing to the Queen. And what has the Queen done? She's read out all the terrible laws that have been put into action. I mean, the Queen is just just a figurehead. She's not even has any power. Yeah, but and, I do think and they... Sorry, Dorcas, still continue. They, well, they were just bowing to her, thinking, oh, we've got the Queen and... And the flag, and no one can come between us. But it, look what's happened. But I do think that they know, <clears throat> that she knows the truth, and this is why they write to her. Because yes. her father used to walk across the road from Buckingham Palace into Buckingham yes. Gate, and he used to borrow the books uh, from BIWF and take them back and, you know, and read them. So yes. we know that he had that knowledge and that that was passed to her. Yes. So I think they're writing, contacting her. And I do believe that she understands these things. Mm. 
But, but they've rested on that, that Laura, it, it must yes. be the misunderstanding of the Jewish problem. That must yes. Be well, that's, well, that's the problem generally, isn't it? That the media has been so powerful that nobody's understood that problem. No. Mm. You know, they sell themselves as the victims, the eternal victims of the planet, whereas they're in reality the predators, predators. Yes. So I don't think they're going to alter. I mean, unless the Almighty just opens their eyes a bit more. Well, well, right, but that doesn't mean that we can't, what we, what we don't, um, that, that doesn't mean that we have rest from trying. No. Right? What we're promised, I, I mean, the, the way I see Isaiah chapters 50, 51, 52, we are promised an awakening of our people. I'm not saying that all of our people are going to awaken. But enough of our people will awaken to make a difference. And and that's yeah. the promise of, of the prophecy as I see it. And um, somebody has to herald the call. Well, a lot of non-church people seem to be getting the message. Well, well you know, people. I've always had a better time with non-church people because non-church people are usually not brainwashed. No. No. And, and church people are usually church people because that they haven't taken the initiative to study for themselves and they're basically slaves to their brainwashing. They're a clean yes. slave, aren't they? Pardon? So they're a clean slave, aren't they? Yes. They're a blank slate, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Which is tragic, really, because they're willing, willing people. Non-church people have usually rejected the church for some reason, and usually that's because they've seen some problem Good in reason. what the churches teach. I mean, I was disgusted with the Catholic Church when I was in 7th, 8th grade because I couldn't buy some of the things that it taught. No. No. And, and because I saw the hypocrisy in it, how how lavishly the priests and 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 the, the how lavishly they lived and and how they acted. Yes. And they're continually kept in a childish state. They're not. They don't mature as people. If I could put it like that. Well, I've spoken to some church people uh, trying to talk to them about the scripture and history, and they are in a childish state. They they do childishly believe what their pastors tell them and and are not developed and confident enough in in their own opinions to to, um, discuss them intelligently. No. No, I think that is a, a big problem with uh, these groups. Uh, well, well, it is, because one should be able to defend one's faith intelligently. 
Yes. That, that's that yeah. firm foundation. That's that solid bedrock that you build your faith upon. Yes. Well, they have to follow party line, really. I mean, that's what it amounts to, the doctrinal line. And they, anyone questions that? Yes. It's frowned upon. I mean, how can one get over that? Because... There, and there's several other little groups. Um, but some people seem to think it's good to have all these little groups because they said if they close down one, the others are still there. But they're not all going along the same line. They're all uh, getting their own doctrine. I've only just been introduced to British Israel in, say, in the last five years or so, because I knew Mr. Armstrong used to have all British Israel material, and we were taught about the tribes through him. And when that all broke up, I had the interest, and I li I could get up to Buckingham Gate. And uh, and I know that they used to send over the magazine to the palace every month or whenever it came out. Um, but it's I never can't, moved. I can't remember when I saw it. It was a long time ago. I may have been already um, involved in Israel identity or not. I don't remember. It, it was a long time ago I saw this magazine. Glossy magazine on on, mm -hmm. on the par with the, the average, not not as nice as those um, British Israel magazines you sent me, but on a par with the average American glossy magazine, right, journal? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and it was from the Church of Philadelphia. And apparently they are a, a, a fragment group of the old Worldwide Church of God, right? They're a splinter yes. group. And, yes, and they had an article in there written by some turkey explaining that the Germans were Assyrians. Yes. That they, they were picking that. it right up from Edward Hine and British Israel. Yes. And, and this was published, um, it had to be published in the 90s. Yes. Well, they thought they were the Philadelphia era of the Revelation churches. I thought they were Philadelphia. But you know, to his to his credit, um, Alan Campbell um, has done some um, uh, talks on the fact that uh, there was a there's a lot of Judah, the tribe of Judah in Germany, and that they are actually our kith and kin. So at least he's not being fooled by all that, which is good that he's spoken out on it. Yes. Well, well, that's good. Uh, I mean, the... Um, Although I wouldn't say... He's not BIWF, by the way, because they kicked him out. They kicked him out? Why Why is that? I'd like to hear that. Well, um, they... Uh, there was a, an untrue article, a defamatory article, um, in uh, an Irish newspaper about him. And the BIWF chose to believe the article 
and not um, Alan's version of anything, even though he went privately to speak to them. Um, so they kicked him out. But quite frankly, he was the only person uh, in the IWF uh, preaching anything like a, a good message. Well, well, that's to his credit. I mean, I don't agree with what he's done with his Beast of the Field paper. He, I think he's made some oversights, but aside from that, that's that, that's to his credit. Yeah. And, of course, you've got to remember that he doesn't use a computer. So I think it's more difficult for him to... Um... Well, well, let me say that you're talking to a guy that didn't have a computer for a long time. Right? <laughs> I'll take that back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I did. I've done 99% of my research without a computer, right? (laughs) (laughs) And and without a typewriter, too, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, I take back my remarks. And and having to wait months for the books I wanted sometimes, but I won't complain. If I didn't get books, it was probably because I wasn't supposed to read them. Yeah, probably not the right time or meant to have them at all. Well, well, yeah, that's to his credit, but but um, I, I mean, I don't dislike the guy. I just wish that you know, men get to a certain level in their lives and and they feel like they know it all, and and they don't have anything else to learn, and and they're 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 resistant to uh, to to new ideas, right? Uh, I mean, I might be like that in some respects myself, but I try not to be. But we should always remind ourselves that we don't know everything, that we have to uh, continually inspect what we think we know to make sure that it holds up against all scrutiny. Yes, we have. And, and it should. That's important. Mm. So we can't ever be too sure of ourselves. Although quite often I am. What else do we have today? We have to have something else today. We we miss I, I miss Danny. He's uh he usually fills well, in all the gaps. <laughs> I, I think he might be coming because I've just noticed um that he's come online. Um so he might be heading this way. Yeah, well, that's like him an hour late. That's okay. I, I, it, maybe he could hear this on, on the recording. <laughs> There's a lot of Americans here. If anybody wants to um, say anything, pipe up as long as it's pertinent, right? Judith, I thought you had a question about something in yes. Sample. Yes, yes, I do. I, I was just wondering if anybody else wanted to, to speak. Uh, yes, I did. And I'd been reading to Samuel, and there was an instance where there was a famine in the land, and David inquired of the Lord, and uh, the Lord answered and said it was because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, uh, and the way they killed and murdered the Gibeonites. And so David asked these people what he could do to right these wrongs and they said uh, could they hang seven of the descendants of uh, Saul and then you have the 
um, the heartrending um, uh, story of Rispar, uh, whose sons were hanged. I think two of her sons were hanged. Um, you know, trying to keep the carrion from uh, eating the bodies, and she, you know, she sits, she stays there night and day, and it, it really is um, a very sad story. And I've been every time I come to it in the Bible, I try and understand it because I don't understand this kind of retribution, which then seems to cleanse the land or or um, cancel the curse or whatever it is uh, and I didn't know whether it was a complete account or not whether something was missing um, and whenever I read anything like this I always try to I always see it through somebody else's eyes how would I feel you know that sort of thing and how would I understand it if I was on the receiving end and what was David think David obviously knew how to act uh, because God doesn't, you know, it seems right in God's sight what David's doing. So I just don't understand it. Um, can you throw any light on that? Well, well yeah, you know, this is a really difficult passage of Scripture. And, and I'm going to read it, right? And, and this is 2 Samuel chapter 21, right? Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of Yahweh, and Yahweh answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, and, and then there's a parenthetical statement here, right? And it says, now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. And, and um, it's true that the Gibeonites... They weren't really a remnant of the Amorites, as this parenthetical statement says. Okay, that's first. The Gibeonites were, according to um, Joshua 9.7, they were Horites. Or, or in Joshua 9.7, it says they were Hivites. And I believe, and I have, um, I can honestly demonstrate that this belief is, is um, very practicable and, and demonstrably true that wherever you see Hivites in scripture, it's a gloss for the word Horites. Now, now the, um, the Gibeonites are said to be in Joshua Horites, and this passage says that they are Amorites. Now, Amorite was a general term used by the Egyptians for all of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, no matter who they were even if they were Israelites. Because the Amorites were at one time the predominant um, Canaanite tribe. The Amorites generally dwelt in the deserts between the Levant and, and uh, well, well, they were probably a much more fertile area at that time, between the Levant and Babylon. And and that was the, the main part of their dwelling place. And they are described in the Sumerian and, and um, Akkadian documents. And, and the, the Akkadians, the Assyrians who spoke Akkadian, they also quite often labeled all of the inhabitants of Syria and Palestine as Amorites. That's because the Amorites were the, pe the predominant people to their west 
to the west of the lands of Sumer and Akkad, that those deserts that, that are within the, the, the inner part of what we know is that they're encircled by the Fertile Crescent, right? Those deserts. And that was the land of the Amorites. So Amorite was used as a general term for all the people basically in between um, the land of Akkad and the land of Egypt. And the Egyptians and the Assyrians both used that term in general means. It doesn't seem to fit, the label doesn't seem to fit the actual time of Samuel. And I think that this parenthetical statement may have been added. And, and that's to keep in mind, right? It does appear in Josephus in this manner. So Josephus, and I'm going to read that in a minute. Josephus's version of 2 Samuel 21 is very much like, you know, and this account is very much like what we have in the King James. But there's other questions to raise here. So we have this parenthetical statement in 2 Samuel 21, 1 and 2, that, that these people, these Gibeonites that David was, con, that, that, that this famine was supposed to be for, according to 2 Samuel 21, 1, what were um, Amorites. And, and that Saul sought, the, the children of Israel had sworn unto them, the children of Israel had an oath with them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Now, that episode we do not have recorded in Scripture, and it is not recorded in Josephus. I can't find it anywhere, and other I have found Matthew Henry also says that the episode is not recorded. So we have no record of this episode, right? Now, and I have more to say about that. Verse 3 says, Wherefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and wherewith shall I make the atonement that you may bless the inheritance of Yahweh? Now, now this is, um, to me, this is very out of character for David, right? And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver nor gold of Saul nor of his house, neither shall thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, What shall ye say that I will do for you? And they demand the, um, the lives of Saul's sons as an atonement, and, and David provides them all of Saul's sons, except for the grandson, the, the, um, the one son of Jonathan, whom David loved, and, and whom Yahweh had a separate oath with, according to this passage in 2 Samuel 21. Now, this is, it's, it's long been recognized by scholars and by, by mainstream scholars, and I would agree that 2 Samuel chapters 21 through 24 are some kind of later addition or appendix to 2 Samuel, which contains some events which are not in chronological order, and some of these events are not mentioned elsewhere in scripture and the story of Saul slaying the Gibeonites is not found anywhere else in scripture or in Josephus and we have a question over whether or not these people could even be 
Amorites, as this passage calls them, because the scripture clearly says that Hivites or Horites are dwelling in Gibeon before the children of Israel inhabited. Now, because of that, it is very difficult for me to comment on this passage with any certainty. I do believe that God judges us based upon our own uprightness and that we should be upright to non-Israelites as well as Israelites because vengeance belongs to God. And I would say that in Galatians 6.10, Paul says, as we therefore as we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all, especially unto them who are of the household of the faith. That tells me that we, and, and Paul says somewhere else, to, to, to tell, he tells us to walk decently towards those who are without. And that means that we should treat even those who are not Israelites with decency. That doesn't mean that we make leagues with the enemies of God, but that means that we treat everybody with fairness and respect because we do represent the children of God, because we know that the enemies of God are wicked, but that vengeance belongs to God and not to us. Now, that is how I, I would answer this passage if indeed... I thought the passage were legitimate. I have problems with the passage, and I tend to think that it's possibly not legitimate. It, it's, um, it's not a part of the original record. There's no references to this passage elsewhere in Scripture. And this passage, the, the events that it's, it, it's um, supposedly recalling cannot be found elsewhere in Scripture. So it's hard for me to address this passage. I, I would like to say a few things about Gibeon, that this passage seems to be ignorant of. This passage says, now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Now, now it doesn't say these Gibeonites. It doesn't say some of the Gibeonites. This passage says, the Gibeonites were not part of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Now, let's see if that squares with the rest of Scripture. Okay? Now, we do know that Hivites, in the time of Joshua, dwelt in Gibeon. There's no dispute there. There's no doubt. Gibeon was originally a Hivite city. And there's no doubt that the Israelites inherited the land of Gibeon. I'm going to read um, Joshua 11:19. It says, "There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hit, the Hivites or the Horites, the inhabitants of Gibeon." All others they took in battle. Now, Josephus explains in Antiquities Book 5 
that the Israelites were, were were stuck with the oath that they had um that they were stuck with the Gibeonites because they had made the oath and that their word in the oath, even though they were tricked into it, had to be fulfilled. They they were forced to keep their oath. And this is one of the um one of the judgments of God against men for not keeping their oaths. And we're told in in the Old Testament that we better keep our oaths. And we're told in the New Testament that we shouldn't make oaths because we should realize that we don't have the power to keep them or not. How many times do men make oaths that they can't keep when in their hearts they really did want to keep them? We simply shouldn't take oaths. We shouldn't make them under any circumstances. And Christ tells us, let your yes be yes and your no be no, but we should not make any oaths. And James tells us the same thing. It's very clear in Scripture. We only get ourselves into trouble every time we make an oath. We, We prove ourselves to be liars every single time. Even if in our hearts we really want to do it, quite often, we don't know what plan God has for us, and he has different plans for us. And, and that's the way it is. So, so this is part of a lesson not even to make, not, not to make oaths with anybody. The, um, the tribe of Benjamin inherited the city of Gibeon. And this is in Joshua chapter 18 where Gibeon is listed among the cities that belong to the tribe of Benjamin in Joshua 18.25. Then, further on in Joshua chapter 21, we see that it was assigned to the Levites. Out of the tribe of Benjamin, it says in Joshua 21.16, talking about the the Levitical cities in every tribe. Gibeon with her suburbs, and Geba with her suburbs, and Anatoth with her suburbs, and Almon with her suburbs, four cities. So Gibeon became a Levitical city in Benjamin. Now let's fast forward 450 years. And we're going to go even past the time of Saul. We're going to go to the time of Solomon. But it's only 40 years after Saul, okay? So I'm sure that this circumstance did not change in the 40 years between Saul and Solomon. But it actually changed. And it could be told from the Old Testament scripture that there are a lot of Israelites in Gibeon. But the time that this circumstance actually changed in the 450 years between Joshua and Saul would be my guess. And let's look at the condition of Gibeon in the days of Solomon when he first becomes king. 1 Kings 3.1 And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh king of Egypt and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of Yahweh and the wall of Jerusalem round about. So Solomon was about to build the temple of God, but it wasn't finished, right? Only the people, 
Only the people sacrificed in high places, this is 1 Kings 3, 2, because there was no house built unto the name of Yahweh until those days. And Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of David his father. This is the good Solomon, right? He turns bad later and turns into idolatry, and, and we all know that. But this is when Solomon is doing good, right? In, in, in the early days of his kingship. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. And, and we're going to see why, right? And, and well, well, it told us why, because there was no temple built yet that the children of Israel were sacrificing to Yahweh in high places, right? And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was a great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar in Gibeon. And in Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And this is important to understand the context here, right? And God asked, what? Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David my father great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth, and in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept him for, his, for this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. And now, Yahweh my God, Thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go in or come out. And thy servant is in the midst. Now this is in Gibeon, right? And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this by so great a people? And, and the whole context here is that Solomon is surrounded by Israelites at Gibeon as he's sacrificing at Gibeon. And that's, it's clear to me that a great number of Israelites are inhabiting Gibeon from 1 Kings chapter 3. So where this addition and, and these last four chapters are, are seem to be an appendix to the books of Samuel which are not in chronological order and that's that that is recognized by many mainstream scholars even and and, and it's clear to me that, that that it's probably accurate and here we have this um that this parenthetical remark that says that the Gibeonites aren't Israelites but they're Amorites and that seems to be inaccurate because the scripture says that they were Horites or Hivites. Well, well, I have to call this entire passage into question because of all those reasons. Because it seems to be contrary to scripture in several different respects. And I would say that because we don't have the actual accounts which it references, I I don't think we can really answer it fairly, and I surely don't think we should base any doctrine upon it. And and that's my answer to your question. Good. That makes me feel a lot better about um, my my own reaction to it. So, uh, 
I think you really covered that well. There's obviously too many um, questions about what's been written there. Well, well, it seems to me to be a spurious passage. It, it really does. But it exists in Josephus. And, and when we have a passage that, that, um, that can't be substantiated and it seems to conflict with the rest of Scripture, it has to be demarcated and, and laid off to the side. It just has to be. But because yeah. Jeremiah had already said that the pen of the scribes has turned my word into a lie. And we, we, we can't expect to have a perfect scripture when it's been in the hands of men for 3,000 years. So, so I, I, I call this passage into question, and I would lay it aside until I found better information. And, and especially information like a second witness. Where's the second witness? I, I want information yeah. that corroborates this passage. And that's what we ha that's the way we have to look at it. Because yeah. David hated the enemies of God with a perfect hatred. Now it's true that the children of Israel do have to respect their oaths, even if those oaths are made with aliens. That's the burden that we have. We shouldn't make oaths with aliens. Then we would be deemed righteous in the eyes of God if we didn't make oaths with aliens. But if we yeah. make them, we have to stick with, with what, what we've professed. We, we have to stick with it. We well, have to fulfill we, them. That's part of the burden. Yeah, I agree with that. When they actually made an oath with the Gibeonites in the first place and allowed them subsequently to be hewers of wood and drawers of water, um, the Gibeonites brought uh, that oath or got it out of them by deception. Yes. And I would have, you know, again, reading that passage, I'd have thought, well, why should anybody keep their word when the other party obtained it through through deception, through lies and so forth? Um, because I, I would tend to see that as a negating a contract. Well, well, that's the way we see it, but but evidently that's not the way it was seen in Scripture, because right. the, the children of Israel were told to live with their oath. Yeah. Now it it appears to me to be clear that Gibeon became a Levitical city, and Solomon went there to sacrifice, and while he was there, he described himself as being amongst all of these great multitudes of Israelites. Yes, he did. Yeah. So, so Yahweh must have multiplied the children of Israel in Gibeon and and dwindled the children of the the, the Hivites, the Horites, even though they were enslaved. Yes, yes, he must. And and, and that's what one Kings three tells me. And, and um, that this passage at, at two Samuel twenty one is contrary to one Kings three. But it's also contrary to Joshua chapter 9, where it, it, it labels these people as Amorites and Joshua calls them Horites. So I yeah. hold this passage suspect. I have to treat it as, as, a, as a possible interpolation. I have yes. to, because it doesn't agree with other scriptures. And it's in a section of Samuel that may, even mainstream scholars admit is an appendix 
of various events which are not in chronological order. And I found that right in the footnotes of my own study Bible, right? Well, I thank you for that. I should treat it accordingly. Right. I might make. I, I, I'm going to save the. Um, I made a few comments in 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 typing. I should say right in, in a text file. What when I what when you told me that you were going to bring this up. Yeah. And um, but when you forewarned me, right, <laughs> this afternoon. <laughs> but but um, no, I, I might expand on it later. Right. I'm going to save the text files. Yeah. Okay, we have to have more conversation than that. I mean, it's only three thirty. No, maybe not. Maybe I should call it a program. I'm sorry, Dorcas. Can I just ask you a question? Um, what you feel about in one Corinthians fifteen? where Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, all will be changed. I wondered, you know, when people have this argument about um, having the spirit of Yahweh given to us, whether um, and, and how important our DNA is, because I was wondering whether uh, would we be able to be... Uh, Restored, he said, um, you know, uh, when the change comes, some will be alive. And um, uh, how would they know, uh, you know, if our DNA wasn't correct, we wouldn't be able to be changed into his next creation. I think I don't want you to answer that, but I would appreciate a little you know, some, what other people feel about that. I haven't been very clear in stating what I want, but it's the uh, breath of the Almighty that we have. And um, and when the change comes, nobody knows when that will be. So that's why it's so important to keep our DNA, you know, and our family... Uh, bloodline as pure uh, because of that reason it gives him something to work with what do you feel well, well John tells us in um, 1 John 3 that we can't sin so long as our seed is in us and Paul tells us in, in other words those sins won't be imputed to us if our seed is in us, meaning if we are genetically pure. Paul tells us that we are sown, the Adamic man, the child of God, is sown a physical seed and raised a spiritual seed. That means that that spirit comes into existence as we are conceived, and it grows with that physical seed. The same DNA produces 
that spirit which Yahweh God bestowed on our race. And that spirit is immortal while the body, the physical seed, is not. And if you are a pure child of Adam, you will have that spirit. And we're told that resurrection is through that spirit. If you do not have that spirit, you have no resurrection. I don't see a resurrection as coming back to life from the dead as the Catholics see it. I see, I believe that the Adamic body dies, but the Adamic spirit cannot die. That's why we have a transfiguration on the mount. That's why Samuel could be called back from, from, from the other world or nether world. That, that's yeah. how Enoch was taken without his body dying. The glorified body, which we see belonging to Christ after the resurrection, that's the promise that Christians have, that we will be made like him. Resurrection is through the spirit, and that, however you want to envision it, we are going to be transformed. We who are still alive are going to be transformed into that form. Resurrection to me is a, a return of the spirit consciousness to a physical reality. Job said, even though flesh eat this body, that with these eyes I shall see my Redeemer. In, in other words, with physical eyes, he would see and stand with his Redeemer. That's Job chapter 19. And, and I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. Yes, I, I know what you, but what I feel, how important it is then for not to have race mixing, because that must block it off. Well, well that, it, it, that makes you a broken cistern. And a broken cistern cannot hold. If your vessel is broken, if your DNA is cracked, you can't hold the spirit of God. No. It cannot dwell in you. No, I understand. Well, that's why race mixing is being pushed uh, so strongly in our society, because it's the one thing that will destroy us. Well, well, right. It's the enemy wanting to remove the spirit of God from the earth. Yes, but people haven't been told this. They haven't been taught it. I mean, so they're ignorant about it. Um, It's a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. You know, I read that Broken Cisterns passage, and and I never did much with it. And I knew it was there, and it, it never really struck me to write a paper about it until I had a, a, a young guy that I had taught Christian identity to, and, and I'd only been talking to him for two or three weeks, and he got it reading that passage. Really? He was off on his own reading his Bible. Yes. Yes. And he got yes. it reading that passage. And, and when he, he was all excited... And and came to me with that passage. I said, you know, David, I'm going to write a paper on that passage now. And I wrote a paper on it, Broken Cisterns. Yes. Mm. Well, we were told about that in um, Worldwide, but it 
it was for everybody that you know, if you know what I mean um for everyone who believed or you know followed the almighty well, well it doesn't make any sense that we can cohabit with anyone simply because they believe because even the demons know there is one God. Well, I'm sure Christ wouldn't want us sleeping with demons. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so that yes. whole church belief is absolutely ridiculous. Yes, I agree. I've always had that in the back of my mind about the DNA, that passage. <laughs> 1 Corinthians, I just thought I'd bring it up today. Well, well, that's what it means. Paul talks about this treasure that we have in earthen vessels. That's the mm. spirit that grows from that physical seed. We're sown yeah. a physical seed and raised a spiritual seed. Yes. Now, now, the churches claim that the, the seed is implanted in us with the word. That's not true. That's an abuse of the parable. Paul clearly states that the physical, the spiritual seed is raised out of the physical seed, that, that it, it, it's, it requires the planting of the physical seed in order to have the spiritual seed. Mm. The spirit of God is genetic, and it's yes. only the Adamic race. Mm. That, that's why that, that's why Isaiah says come out from among them you who bear the vessels of the Lord it's not talking about people carrying around cups and bowls the vessels of Yahweh are the, the Adamic bodies yes and we're told to come out from among them and touch not the unclean well only the children of Israel were cleansed on the cross who were, you know, today those people with those Adamic bodies. Yes. And those who were unclean is basically everybody else because they were not cleansed by Christ on the cross. No. Okay, on that note, we've got almost two hours, and, and I'm going to end the program, and I want to thank you all for being here, and, and um, thanks for listening, and praise Yahweh. Thank praise you. Yahweh. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night.
Shouldn't be around.